Hey everybody, happy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever day of the week it is that you are listening to this. Welcome to King of the Ride podcast. I am Ted King, your host today and nearly always. The cycling season is underway. I often got my road race season kicked off at the Tour of San Luis in Argentina. The Tour Down Under was the other piping hot January race, and that's going on as of this recording. I love road racing. That's where I got my start. That's where I spent the majority of my career. Although, I guess now that we've ticked over to 2024, (laughs) this marks my ninth year of gravel racing. So, uh, gosh, they are starting to rival one another. In any event, our guest today is one of America's very best road cyclists, and frankly, he's making a name for himself on the world stage in a big, big way. Matteo Jorgensen is on the podcast today, just 24 years old. He's already stacking up some incredible results. Last year, he won the Tour of Oman overall, also taking home Best Young Rider honors, the points classification, and Stage 3. I never did Oman, but I can speak to just how tough Tour of Romandy is, often a final tune-up before the Giro d'Italia, and he was second overall there in 2023. And far from just a week-long stage racer, he's pretty darn handy in the classics as well. He nabbed a top 10 at the very hallowed Tour of Flanders in 2023. It is super cool to watch Matteo. He has been on my radar for the past three seasons, and it seems like he's just getting warmed up. So he joined me from team training camp with his new team, the very top team in the world by most accounts, Team Visma Lisa Bike, formerly Yumbo Visma. He was very generous with his time and how he made the time for this podcast. So consider me a fan of Matteo for his abilities on the bike and his very polite graciousness off. I'm excited for this conversation. Hey, speaking of Europe and European road racing, you've probably caught wind of me taking an Ngamba trip here or there over the past few years. Ngamba is the pro experience for any cyclist. Just the way you are handled as a rider, the, the, the massage, the attention to detail for you and your bike at every moment throughout the week. It's an absolute once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, once-in-a-lifetime trip, and this one in particular has me very, very, very excited. This, me speaking to you right now, is an invitation to join me and Dutch superstar Lawrence Tendam as we ride down the N2 straight down the length of Portugal in late April. Just check out the link in this podcast's show notes. You do not want to miss this one. And lastly... With the additional workload that I've imposed upon myself with my return to racing in 2024, I rely on AG1 to help me feel energized, hydrated, and ready to roll each and every morning. It is very simple. Every morning for the past two years, I wake up and drink a serving of AG1. It's just one scoop into water once a day, and it makes me feel like like I'm already winning the day as soon as the day has started. And it's after the AG1, that's when I have coffee. That's how much I prioritize it. And that's because AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and so much more. If there's one product I recommend to elevate your health, it is AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try it now. Get one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just by visiting drinkag1.com slash tedking. 
Again, that's drink, the letter A, the letter G, the number one dot com slash Ted King. Check it out. No more waxing on here, my friends. Please welcome Mateo to the show. Good afternoon, Mateo. I want to kick this off on the right foot. So, Mateo Jorgensen or Jorgensen? Hard J, soft J. Or maybe I butchered it entirely. I don't know. You got it. Jorgensen. First try. Yeah, right on. Uh, that's, that's, the Amer- that's the American way to say it. Yeah. I'm, uh, the more time I spend with Danish guys, the more I realize that it's definitely not the correct way to do it. But <laughs> that's, the, that's the American way. We do it. We do how we want. Sure, exactly. And you're... What is the etymology? I mean, is your is your family Dutch or? Uh, my my uh, grandpa is Danish, okay. or his family is Danish. My on my dad's side, so yeah, um, yeah he's from. I think he, he, I think his dad was born in Copenhagen, and then they immigrated over. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a few generations removed, no, but very good, there. very good. Um, okay, so. You're in Europe as we speak. I'm here in the U.S. We've got a computer screen, six hours, and an ocean separating the two of us from being in person. Um, I want you to set the scene for us a little bit. So, so given that we're recording this just nine days into the new year, and knowing that holidays, December and January, are a really busy time of year for cyclists, it's sort of a two-part question. First, with the short lens, can you tell me where you are right now? And then zoom out a little bit. And what has the past, let's say, month or two looked like to get you to this exact spot? Sure. Um, right now, I'm in Alicante, Spain. Um, just got here yesterday to for our first training camp of, uh, of the year. Um and yeah over the holidays i was in the u.s so i just got back on the first of the year actually to europe i spent uh christmas and yeah i didn't spend new year's with them but i spent christmas with the family just i was over there eight days so it wasn't yeah it wasn't super long but it was enough (laughs) um yeah and then yeah i went straight i mean I, i traveled straight there from our first camp in december and we had our camp and team presentation shortly after. So we, yeah, we went, yeah, just lots of travel. There, there's been the past few months, basically, I've just been going all over Europe, um, traveling, going back and forth from the team headquarters in Nice, which is my home, and doing, yeah, various things. We had uh, wind tunnel testing, Roubaix recon one day, Flanders recon another day. Um, yeah, we had the team days in in late November, which were like um, where kind of the whole team gets together, all the staff, all the riders from the Devo team, the women's team, and the men's team for my new team, Viz Melissa Bike. And we all got together and did. Um, they actually, which I think is cool, they they get us all together and they, they kind of teach us what the people at the service course are doing because... Uh, this team has gotten so big, uh, from what I can tell, that they they worry that um, we don't really know what's all going on behind the scenes because <laughs> there's such a crazy amount of staff and like the service course is such a huge operation that 
they just want us to kind of know what what they're doing there and so we have kind of an appreciation or at least a knowledge of of um yeah what all the staff is doing so that that was really nice i found that really yeah really cool we kind of went around different stations in the service course and kind of saw what they were doing day to day and yeah it was impressive it was uh it was shocking the amount of stuff going on there it's like a whole a whole little buzzing <laughs> world in this uh, little town in, in Holland and yeah. people going in and out and forklifts and trucks going in. I mean, it was craziness, but um, it was cool to see. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I think there's the unknown assumption that you got a dozen mechanics and a dozen swanures and there's a service course boss and they oversee a little bit of that forklift operation but you imply that it's a it's a bigger scene than that um and we can get into that in a little bit so you talked about being home in the states remind me are you an idahoan is that right i'm an idahoan yes sir nice and then your home as you mentioned is in europe is nice does one feel like home more than the other or do you do you feel like you have a little bit of a split person not personality but like a duality in life. What what is home? <laughs> That's a good. Yeah, I mean for sure, I, I I'm more at home when I'm in the U.S. There's no doubt. Um, yeah. But yeah, like that being said, I do my best to to make Europe home. I yeah, I, I came over here pretty young. I moved when I was 20 to Europe, so. I've done my best because I know that if I want to be successful in the sport, you have to be comfortable over here. So I've done my best to kind of try to get as comfortable as possible. But uh, yeah, it's only when you uh, go back that you really like go back to the U S that you realize how much more comfortable you are there than, than here because you kind of forget after a while. But yeah, yeah. Both places have, have their, have their positives and negatives. No doubt. Yeah. It's like the, the convenience of the strip mall is not a selling point to the United States, but, but I think those are the, the luxuries of being a, a citizen here, a resident here. It's what I always joke about. It's like, if it's 2am on a Tuesday night and you need a pair of sandals and a greetings card and some name, anything else, makeup, you know, you go to the pharmacy and you can get it. In, yeah. in a bag of chips, yeah. but like in Europe, it's like, yeah, right. That is just literally impossible. You cannot do that. Um, right. right. And that's not a selling you know better, point. Uh, you know better than anyone. Yeah. Or it's like, but there's times where you, yeah, if you don't think, if you don't, it, it's really like, if you don't plan it, you can get into some like, oh, well, it's not really that bad, but it's like you, you fly in and I don't know if you fly in and you land at seven in at night yeah. and you don't have any food in your apartment and you just finish Flanders. You know, you go home and maybe it's Sunday, which it is after Flanders and you're ravagingly hungry, you know, like yeah. you literally just did a six and a half hour, seven hour race yeah. and there is not one place open, you know, Sunday in France, it is like better than dead. <laughs> you can't find, you can't even find a baguette lying around, you know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you got to do some planning for sure. Yeah. It takes some foresight. It takes some. I don't know. We get you get to be complacent, kind of lazy in the states. So it's good to have that foresight. Um, all right. Absurdly common question, really easy question. How did you first get into cycling? Yeah, I started 
when I was around six years old, my parents put me in the birds, the Boise birds. Um, it's a, it's a, yeah, a really cool program in Boise, Idaho. It's like a, just a program for young kids to get into the cycling, mountain biking, road biking, everything. And yeah, they put me and my brother in. My brother's like six years older than me, but we both started at the same time. And um, just thanks to them deciding to do that, I had no interest in cycling before that. I mean, I was six years old, so yeah. what interest do you really have at six? But yeah, thanks to them, they, they put me in and I really liked it right off the bat. Like immediately I was, um, there were a bunch of kids around my age and uh, Douglas Tobin, the guy who runs the program, was super good with kids. And we had a great group at the time of, you know, lots of young kids. We go mountain biking. At that time, I think I was doing like three days a week or something. And yeah, from there, kind of just just expanded with the birds. Um, yeah, I got older and still with kids my age. I think that's the key is, yeah, the the, the key to make to making kind of cycling a... a um, a sustainable thing when you're a kid is to have is to do it with other kids that are your age and make it a social thing um like other high school or other school sports are in the u.s so yeah that was really good with the birds i was just lucky to be in boise idaho really because there's not many not many other places in the country i think with that sort of a program for sure yeah i mean it it reminds me of uh nika i mean getting kids in in north america into cycling in the, at the high school level, I think is a huge benefit, and then getting them into the junior high, but then to have it at that age, it's it's pocketed where that exists, like Boulder Youth Cycling, Boulder Junior Cycling, rather. California has it, but man, like what a benefit if we could get that opportunity everywhere, all throughout totally. the country. Um, totally, that's the yeah, it's the grassroots for sure. And then, I mean, fast forwarding through it, but then I also want to dive into it. There's the more typical route. Okay, I mean, let's state the obvious. You were racing for Movie Star for three years, a very Spanish team. There's a more typical route as a North American to end up on an Anglo team, an English-speaking team, and you didn't go that that typical route. Um, first, how did you land as a stagiaire on a French team? I think you did that with what AG2R maybe. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you make the leap to to Movie Star? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so coming out of juniors, basically I was, I was, yeah, pretty average junior in the, at least in the European Peloton, uh, I was, yeah, run of the mill guy. I wasn't, it wasn't anything special as a junior. So, um, I didn't just didn't basically didn't get the opportunity to ride fraction, which is the way that most of the U 23s or most of American U 23s at the time and still, I think now go, maybe it's changing a little bit, but, um, that was kind of the big program and yeah, I just didn't get the opportunity to do it. So I, yeah, I still wanted to pursue cycling. Um, it's for a lot of kids, it's kind of like the, the split point. It's like, if they don't make it on action, um, yeah, there's not really a way forward, which is totally valid. It's, it's a much harder path. Um, but yeah, I I still wanted to pursue it. So I, I was trying to kind of find, a way I could ride in Europe, um, to find my way on a European team, basically any team that would take me in the end. Um, I, yeah, straight out of juniors was trying, you know, going into my first U23 when I was 19 and didn't find anything that year, but thankfully jelly belly. Yeah. Gave me a bike and kid and, uh, sent me on my way to Europe and they let me race with the national team, which 
was really great. We had a really strong national team at the time, a really well-funded national team. And who were the who um, were your contemporaries at that time on the national team? You mean guys around me, my age? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like on the team with you, not the folks that you're racing against. Sure, uh, like Gage Hecht. Um, uh, yeah, Brandon McNulty was my age. Um, or he's a year older than me. Um, question there. Uh, Lance Haydet did Avenir with me. Riley Sheehan. Um, yeah, a bunch of guys. But yeah, good contemporary. Yeah, at the time, at the time, Nate Wilson was running the running the program, which was great. Uh-huh. Uh, he's now he's now a performance coach at EF, but. Um, yeah, it was th- just, I, I'm, I'm grateful that we had that, uh, kind of fallback system at the time, because if it wasn't there, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to kind of still continue racing that year. And thankfully that year I, I kind of got some good, decent rides in Europe. Um, you know, especially in some French races that caught the attention of, of AG2R's Devo team, uh, which was called Chambéry CF at the time. And they were just an amateur team. They weren't even a continental development team, but they had a really good uh, reputation of sending guys pro. They would turn like four guys pro with their world tour team, H2R every year. So it was a really solid program and they like, yeah, had a huge history and um, just, just a good team. They weren't like super well-funded or flashy team, but yeah, they had a really good, really good foundation. And they just decided to give me a, yeah, give me a shout. They, um, they just, I guess, had seen me in a in a French race near where Chambéry is in in the Rhone Alps, and they, yeah, were just willing to give me a sh- a try because they had, I don't know, some quota they needed to meet with two basically non European riders uh, every <laughs> season. So, yeah, they gave it a go, and it, it was a great. I had a I had a really uh, hard year. My first year in in France was really really difficult um with them just because yeah i went over not speaking any french and with that team i had to live yeah they required us to live all together in these apartments in chambry um and yeah i was living with 12 other french dudes that didn't speak um any english they were yeah great kids but the french uh french english level is is not super high in in general so yeah they um they yeah were really patient with me and stuff, but I was also they, they sent me to French school. The team did. They paid for me to go to uh, like French school every day from nine to twelve because part of that team's idea or identity was that it was like a split system where with education and cycling, um, where everyone was required to do some sort of education. So yeah, it was really cool. Like the French kids were going to real university, and uh, me and the other Australian kid were just going to French school every day, but. <laughs> It was great. Like looking back, it was it was a hard year. Like while I was doing it, but looking back, it was like one of the best experiences I've ever had. Um, yeah. Just being in a foreign country, full immersion, learning a different language. Um, yeah, chasing a dream, and it all worked out. Yeah, that, that year it went super well. I learned French really quickly and started to kind of do well with the results and some race, some U twenty three races, Ronda Lizard and and Avenir and. Um, yeah, basically, Movistar approached me right before Avenir, and um, yeah, the rest, I guess, was was history with them. That's kind of perfect. Um, how was your Spanish before they approached you? 
the typical American um, Spanish you learn, yeah, from from first to sixth grade, so pretty <laughs> low level, but yeah. Thankfully, I just learned French, which is like kind of priming. It's a good primer for your brain to learn. They're similar languages, have the same structure and stuff. So Spanish came like 50 times easier than French did. I'll say that it came within like a month. I was speaking good Spanish with movie star even without going to school, whereas French took me yeah. a good three months. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a heck of a lot of sense. Did you have any representation at the time? I mean, did you, like when movie star, sure, when a world tour team approaches you, you're head over heels having just gone through this this previous handful of years knocking your head against the wall. Was it mm-hmm. sweet sign of the yeah. dotted line or, or were you looking around at other teams or how did how did you land there? Uh, yeah, I did have, I did have an agent. Uh, I'd signed with an agent that year when I was with Shumbury. Um and yeah, uh, it was a little bit complicated. Uh, I was just talking to someone about this, but with with AG2R and with Chambry, I had signed a, um, a matching clause in my contract, which meant that um, if AG2R, AG2R had basically right to first refusal or like they, they had, since they put invested money to develop me, they uh, could match the offer. Um, but yeah, Movistar had offered me for that following year to start in 2020 and AG2R, uh, yeah, they, they had a bit more of like a conservative, um, like approach to, to signing guys pro always like they just never signed a guy pro before the third or fourth year under 23, which now sounds like ridiculous and saying that now because it's totally different. But, um, at the time that was like the more normal way to do it. And they were just, yeah, they, they basically offered me to turn pro the following year, um, instead of that year. So I'd sign, uh, yeah, for like 20, start in 2021 instead of 2020 and stay under 23 another year. And, yeah, it, it was a, it, it wasn't an easy decision. I, I have to say, like I remember a lot of discussion with my agents, just because it wasn't like choosing one team or the other was hard, but it was like the decision to go pro at that time felt uh, I didn't really feel super ready personally. Like I didn't believe like in myself well enough that I thought that I would be good enough at uh, as a professional because you just never know until you've done a pro race, if you're going to, yeah, if what, what the level or what the difference in level is like. Um, so yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't super confident about the decision, but yeah, I, I talked a lot with Nate Wilson at the time, who was the 23 director and also my agents. And, um, yeah, they, they both thought I was plenty ready and, uh, thought, yeah, I could make it happen. So I, I guess I trusted them and thankfully I did because, I remember thinking back in because tw- 2020 is when the pandemic started and, sure. and, um, yeah. and like U tw- U23 racing that year just stopped entirely. So like the pandemic started and there was not a single race that was not, you know, a world tour level almost that whole year. Yeah. So yep. I think if I had waited another year, I would have been really, uh, really screwed, you know, really, it, it was just a lucky, lucky decision that I made. So, yeah. That's wild. Yeah, talk about timing. I mean, we could get into a whole podcast about what it's like starting your world tour career during a pandemic. Similarly, uh, we could probably do an entire podcast, 12-part series podcast, on what it's like riding as one nationality on a very 
quintessentially different nationality cycling team. So there you are, as an American, on on Movie Star. Now, from afar, it feels like you found a home there. You had tremendous success. In in so many words, what was your experience like racing there? Um, and if that's you know if that's not the case, like did you was it home? Was it not home? Was it was it wildly difficult? Was it simple? What was it like? Because I feel like I mean not <laughs> to interrupt myself. Unless your last name is. Valverde and Moss, everybody knows those guys, and then that's what the team has been designed around for so long. And you you planted your flag and did amazingly well. Anyway, what's it like? Yeah, no, I I had a really great experience there. Um, it, yeah, I think a few uh, there were just a few really good things that lined up, um, and like the first one being. I entered the team in a time when they were changing a lot and they were, yeah, they had just um, lost Quintana, Landa. I don't know. The the year I joined, they had had just a huge change in their um, riders. So I guess there was just a lot of opportunity there uh, open for the taking and a lot of races where there weren't like designated leaders and we weren't going yeah, there was just a lot of openness in the team. So I was just really lucky to have in my first few years, tons of opportunity and tons of like, uh, freedom, uh, in, in racing. Like I went, you know, in my first or second, my, I guess it was my second year pro. I went to Perry Nice, which is a huge world tour stage race. Um, and I was like, I was the leader of the team and I hadn't, I hadn't like merited that at all. You know, I, I wasn't like, ready for that i wasn't uh yeah it, it was just like uh, they were looking for a leader and i had done some good numbers that winter and they just decided to do it that way and um yeah stuff like that is just wild looking back because i really wouldn't have had that on any other team um let me interrupt and it, it helped you you finished yeah. eighth at that for either first or second perry nice like I still have nightmares of my first Perry Nice and how difficult it was and it's snowing and it's sleeting and it's March and you're like, oh, I thought I had a good winter and why is everybody kicking my teeth in? So you're being humble by saying, oh, I was the captain and got to be doing pretty well. Anyway, bravo to you. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, before that, I, yeah, I really hadn't had any, yeah, results that I, that I would personally say that that would have merited that kind of an opportunity, but, um, yeah, that, that winter, like I said, I'd been doing some good numbers and training and whatever. And, um, yeah, I, I, it was just a thing that kind of all lined up and it helped that I really like took the language and stuff into my own hands and like tried hard to learn Spanish the first year. So I was quite like integrated within the team, which isn't the case for all international guys. I think that's the thing a lot of maybe some guys overlook is just how important it is to like to really like be part of the team. I think if, if you're in a team like that, I think it's, it goes the same for Mobistar as it does in Kofius and AG2R. And um, yeah, a few of these kind of teams that have a really strong cultural um, core, which, uh, you know, Mobistar did and it was Spanish and the staff spoke Spanish and that was my expectation going in. I didn't expect anyone to speak English or anything. So um yeah, I, I went kind of full into Spanish and I think I gained the trust of the team by doing that and also the staff and I was able to kind of make relationships with my teammates and stuff, which really helped. And so, yeah, I think 
just a lot of things lined up to make the, yeah, to make my progression over the four years I was there, like really steady and, and, and good. And I just had a great time. I mean, they're an old school team for sure, but they are super caring and they have really good staff and they're just a, yeah, they're just a great group of Spanish people. You know, they, yeah, I have really no bad things to say about the team itself. It's um, yeah, it, it was a great environment for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, your results speak to an incredible amount of talent and, of course, a heck of a lot of hard work. Um, and a lot of, not all, but a lot of the results that that I see are on uh, front-heavy races that, that maybe Movie Star doesn't typically target, Spring Classics, for example. And I realize that a cycling calendar is very front-heavy these days, loads of big races in the spring. Have you targeted your fitness for the spring and in, in, in spring classics and those races in particular or do you think it's just a matter of hitting your stride and and understanding the cadence of a world tour peloton and races sure. yeah it's a funny thing that that happened to me has happened over and over every year but i think a lot of it is that <laughs> Uh, I, I think I spend, I've spent the winter a lot in the U S over the past, like, or even more. Uh, yeah. I mean, whenever I, I would just usually spend the winter in the U S or, um, mostly in the U S and I think it gave me like, uh, it just lined up a combination of things where I was in like happy, um, I was usually in a good like training environment. I would spend maybe the winter in LA area or just somewhere warm or yeah, whatever. And I, I think I just always came into the season like flying. That was just kind of like my, that's just like my rhythm. I come into it really good and then usually gets tired in the middle of the season and then come out usually pretty well at the end again, but that's always been my rhythm. And I, I try to figure out reasons why that is. And I think a lot of it is probably just that I've spent yeah, mostly more time through the winter and off season in the U S and then come into the season a bit fresher, like mentally. Um, but yeah, in, in the la last year, I, I guess I spent most of the winter in Europe, but, um, I just had really had a really like targeted training and just really went all in on like training and performance last winter, especially in, did a, my own camps and um, did some altitude camps by myself and just kind of went all in to try to have a really good spring this last year, which, yeah, which went well. But I think in general, I'm, I'm just pretty good at training and I like training. So if I come out of a period of long, you know, preparation and training, I'm usually racing pretty well. I usually do worse if I'm racing too much, you know? Yeah. 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 You can certainly overcook it. Um, well, that's definitely you figured out the algorithm. So well done to that. Um, you're you're in Spain. You're at training camp now. New team, all that. I feel like I feel like times have changed pretty significantly since my time in the World Tour. Uh, altitude has become a way of life. Multi week camps are the norm. That was very much not the case. You're you're young and in the throes of it right now. So without really having lived a previous generation from a decade ago is there is there a recognition do you think among you and your immediate contemporaries that cycling has gotten crazy with data and regimented lengthy altitude camps and the importance of numbers and, and power and strength to weight ratios 
or is it just the norm right now? Yeah, it, it is the norm now. Well, at least where like in the environment I am right now, it's the norm. Totally. Um, yeah, I definitely want to get into in, what it's like being on the team. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. No, it's funny because when I was on Movistar, it was like, it became the thing that we just start talking about, you know, it was like on Movistar, we had a lot of, um, at least when I was there, we had some really experienced riders like, yeah, Alejandro, um, we had Erviti who just retired, Emanuel Erviti who retired at like 40 and Rojas and these guys that were like exceptionally experienced, you know, they had been right. pro as long as literally they had literally been pro as long as I had been alive. Yeah. So it was like to that extent they had seen, so much of cycling go by them. Um, and so, yeah, it just became this thing that like was constantly being discussed, you know, and I was mostly, a I was mostly a, a witness to that. I didn't really weigh in much because I mean, to be honest, all I've seen is the new cycling. I turned pro in 2020 and since, yeah, all the old guys say since the pandemic, really things have changed. Like since everyone, since cycling restarted, it's changed a lot. So I've only seen what it's like on the new end. Um, but yeah, from what they tell me, it's it's changed a lot. I mean, from the stories they tell about what races used to be like and the things that used to go on at bike races, uh, it's a unimaginable thing for me. You know, it's like a world that I've never seen or heard of or anything. So um, it, it's interesting. I think, yeah, I, I don't know, yeah, really which is better, but now I think it's it's going one direction and that's really the scientific, scientific way now. Yeah, I think, allow me to harp on gravel for a minute. It's funny, you know, it's such a young sport and it's changing very quickly and people are like, ah, what's what's right? What's the best? Are we in a good phase or is this a bad phase? And then just did a podcast about this last week and it's a question that comes up all the time. That like on a much, much more global picture, like every sport changes. I'll often talk about cycling being fluid, but every sport changes. Like there was a time you wouldn't do a slam dunk in basketball and there was no slap shot in hockey and there were no out of the park home runs in baseball and all of these things are what we see now and they're contemporary and they're fun, but they're all fluid. Like the sport is going to change. And so as hyper scientific and what I call like immediately, I mean, immediate, it's very acute in cycling right now, paying attention to every detail. I don't know if it's going to go into a state of entropy and become more lazy. I can't really picture that, but the sport is going to change and it always does and always will. I had Alex Dowsett on the podcast. You didn't? Did you overlap with him at Movie Star at all? I didn't. No, I didn't. I remember he really he he credited Movie Star with giving the riders a pretty relaxed off season. Instead of going in and having seventy five training camps by the time March rolls around, it was like go home, do your job, be a professional, and show up at races. Talk about in your short experience with. Visma, Lisa Bike, Yumbo, Super Bees, whatever it's called. In your short time, compare compare those two experiences because I I can't imagine that overnight Movie Star has become a wildly scientific team, and I think Yumbo is thought of as very forward thinking. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I was just riding with Luke Rowe the other day, and he was like, 
I think you may be the guy who's made the transfer from the most old school team to the most new school team. And I think he's right. I think, I, I think right. yeah, I think the the winter is really where you see the differences uh, become apparent. Like this period that I've gone through now, or still going through, but. I think, yeah, I mean, my first years at Mobistar, we didn't even have a winter camp. You know, it was like you were saying with Alex, what Alex was saying, they were really big on letting guys spend time with their family and totally understandable stuff and like like stuff that I think is great. You know, like it, it just came from riders being fed up with like, mostly like Alejandro being fed up. You know, he lives in Mercia, which is like down the road from here. It's beautiful weather all year. Um, he is a super professional. He trains all year, every day. It's his whole life. You know, he does everything right. eats perfectly. And he would get fed up with like spending two weeks, just two hours up the road with the team and have to ride in the wheels all day and, uh, yeah, not train and not be as happy, not be with his family. So yeah, a lot of that came from, from him where he was just like, we're not having these winter camps and it's like, it's pointless. But, um, yeah, I guess you see just switching teams. I, I've seen a totally different side of it where it's like, if you really invest in the camps and like, you really like make the camps, uh, better than what you could do on your own, you know, you, yeah, here they do things. Yeah. Like one example is the nutrition. They have this thing called food coach, which is their um nutrition app and they have um they just have poured a lot of investment into their nutrition side here at visma and and yeah one of the things is that they just they don't make you like they they just take all the all like the decision making and the stress out of like eating and so they they make it super simple for you like they plate your food for you and give you the portions you need and they you know based on the training you have coming up the training you've done and the kilojoules you're burning and what your you know your target objective is for the camp if you're trying to lose weight or if you're trying to maintain or whatever you know they calculate all of it and they just give you the food you need and it's like amazing i mean i don't know how to describe it It, you, you really can only like no, I'm sure you relate to it, but the, the people listening, it's like, you can really only know when you've gone through a time where you're trying to like lose weight cycling. And it just becomes like, all you think about in the whole day is just like what you're eating. And if you're eating enough to fuel the training and if you're, but you still have to eat, not, you still have to eat a little bit less than that to lose a little bit of weight. And it just becomes a thing that, yeah, overcomes your mind. So I think the way they do it here, where they just like, they have a team of chefs and a team of nutritionists that are working like the whole day to calculate each person's like based on like, let's say you did a ride and you spent more of the day in the wheels, then yeah, they're going to recalculate it and your dinner will be slightly smaller, but it's not even a, it's not even an amount you're going to really notice. It's like the food is all so tasty and like so well balanced and good food that yeah, you're not going to notice the small difference in, you know, uh, yeah carbohydrate that that's left out or whatever it's like just a game-changing thing so yeah when, when you move like when you think about camps in a different way and it's like you go to a camp to like fully invest for those for the time you're there and then you know when you're at home you can have a little bit 
to get a different outlook. But um, when camps are like more of a drag and, you know, you, they're just like being at home, but you're away from your friends and family. And yeah, then it's, then it's a bit uh, less pleasant. So yeah, that's where this team, I guess, makes the difference is these times when we're at camp. Sure. I'm excited to send you a text the Sunday night of Flanders and be like, did you get home and there's no food in the kitchen or did the team actually send you onto the airplane with a with a whole plate of food down to the explicit number of carbohydrates you needed? <laughs> um, well, I, I already know the answer. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's going to be the latter. You're like, yeah. but I'm still hungry. Um, <laughs> right. So, in in hockey terms, what is it? <laughs> in podcasts that I've listened to, without, I mean, by using hockey terms, without pumping up your tires too much, you've been lauded as a replacement to Wout in the tour. What you bring to the table, what you are bringing to to the team. I don't want to get ahead of myself and start talking about July, having just done that. What what sort of conversations have you had about the year ahead with the team? Where where your role is because the team is so deep and so strong. Um, yeah. What does the year ahead look like? Yeah, what's great is that. Well, two things. One, they they are so good at planning here and management that they do all this stuff so early on that they give you a full calendar for the whole year, which is completely new for me. And then two, they, they released that. So like they've already released at the team presentation, most everyone's race days. And yeah, I'm, I'm like allowed to talk to you about it, which I've never in the past been able to do. You know, it's always been like this secretive thing. I'm not allowed to tell you what race days, mostly because I don't even know if that's what I'm telling you is true. You know, yeah. it's probably going to change. But sure. yeah, here it's it's one of the things they really do well. And it's like with it's with uh, management and they do they just plan every single detail so far out. Um, and yeah, they've talked with me extensively like there's a whole kind of process they went through with like yeah they have this whole they explained it to me their their internal process of like reflecting on the season behind so like they go through every single key race and objective that they had and like objectively value did they did they complete that objective and if not why not and even if they did if they could have done something better or whatever and they make notes on basically all the things that they wanted to improve and then they bring that forward into the next year when they're making the calendars and they're making the plans. So yeah, basically they gave me a, a full, a full, um, full calendar already, uh, and up until at least through the tour. So yeah, I, I have a really amazing calendar race calendar was something I didn't expect. Um, yeah, I, I'll start with the, basically I'll do most of the classics. I'll start opening weekend, do all loop and Kern and then do Paris and after that, do E3, Forsdorf Lander and Flanders and Roubaix. And then after Roubaix, take a little break um, before going and yeah, going back to altitude and training for Dauphine and Tour. Um, and yeah, for me, it'll be less race days than I'm used to for sure. Uh, there's not, 
yeah, all these other smaller races before and after, uh, like, uh, I'll basically remove, if you compare to last year's calendar, I'll remove Oman and Romandy, but the races that I do will all be like a races, you know, I'll be trained for them. I'll have prepared for them specifically. And yeah, for me, it's that I prefer that a lot. It's way, just way nicer mentally to go to a race and know you prepared for it and you're not using it as preparation or something else. So, um, yeah, it, it's a really nice, uh, nice calendar. It's, it almost takes a page out of the, I mean, obviously being on this team, it takes a page out of the very scientific approach. It's very robotic the way you're talking about the objective accomplishments and what was, what, what was brought to the race, what you delivered and then look at the result as an outcome. It's going to be really interesting to see in a decade or so if every team adopts this, where that puzzle plays out. Like, because totally. because it is happening on open roads, and that's what I think remains exciting. It's not as though I mean, even in, in a if this could happen in a velodrome, like a very closed vacuum. Yeah, there are yeah. still variables where you someone's going to get sick, someone's going to get a flat tire, someone's going to any number of things so anyway it's 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 really interesting no, it's such yeah. a forward approach and it's an inevitability that other teams are going to have to adopt it yeah i i also think in some ways it's easier to do it when you have such a yeah such a roster like they have here uh it's easier to to make first of all make big objectives because you know that you have the riders that We'll be able to do them. If you have Wild Van Aert and Jonas Vingegaard on your team, then yeah, you can be pretty sure that you'll do some pretty good things. But it, yeah, it, it's really it, it is something to say. Like they they really like go. F- These guys have full they have full time jobs at the service course. Like people that just sit there planning like all day every day. It's like guys that are just sitting there going through these little details like. You know, they're literally, they literally have people to think about, like, uh, they have a guy that his, his title is head of apparel, you know, and he's, he's like, his whole job is just to manage the, the clothing for the team because they know that that's a point in the past that they've had problems and that, you know, they, they needed someone to manage, you know, like if this guy has a problem with his jersey, then he needs to send it here. And it's like, they need a responsible guy for that and to manage the, the sizing and the this and yeah they, they just take every little detail and and um kind of iron it out so it's been something impressive to watch and yeah like you said it is robotic in a way but as a rider i have to say maybe it's my personality but it's like it makes your job so much easier when you don't have variables anymore that are out of your control or when you have at least the confidence that like there's someone there behind you thinking about these things for you. It makes everything easier. You just focus on the things that are important, which is, yeah, doing your training, low, making the lowest stress life you can outside of that, like recovering from your training. And then, yeah, focusing on to make sure you, you are going to nail the races. So like, you know, reconnaissance and knowing the tactics and, all of that it's like it just simplifies your life it's it's interesting because the team your team does not show up at a race because it's on the calendar and you have to your team shows up at every single race with the expectation to perform and to do well and ultimately to win it Mm 
So, you know, there's a, there's, there's the time and place that you cut your teeth in cycling, getting yourself into dumb breakaways, just burying yourself to do things that, you know, tactically aren't the best, but maybe it's the one in a hundred chance that it, that it succeeds. This is a totally different approach. I mean, you're, it's basically money ball, except you're playing with a team that can afford all the best players, too. It's going to be fascinating as this approach you know, sweeps cycling. Because there still are plenty of teams that show up, and they don't have anyone who's going to finish in the top 10 GC, so they have to throw their cards on the table in other totally. ways. I mean, it's, it is fascinating. It's just totally. The evolution totally. of cycling. Yeah. Um, so... You're a affable guy. You're you're fun to watch bike racing. Among other things that I like about you is you're a tall cyclist. I'm a tall cyclist. We're both we're both over six feet tall. You're not this five foot nothing, 120 pound whippersnapper. And I bring that up yeah. because you first reached out to me about van life, if I'm not mistaken. So <laughs> you were asking me about what it's like to you know have a double decker, have a bunk, how a sleeping, how are you oriented in the van. All very valid questions if you're going to make that investment. Where are you in, in your van life project? Great timing on that question. Uh, I am at the end of it now. I Yeah, after asking you that stuff, I had... Um, well, I, I yeah, the whole van thing just is... It's just a funny thing that I remember, like, looking back, it's just this thing that came up when I was at altitude somewhere and thinking about what I'm going to do when I'm after the race and yeah, I want to disconnect and it's something you kind of like, uh, you're dreaming about, but yeah, I decided to buy a van, um, and get it built out by a guy. And, and yeah, there were lots of things that I didn't expect, lots, lots of little details that I had to kind of figure out that I didn't expect. But one was, yeah, the, the height of the, the bed, because the bed then you need a pretty high bed if you have a high saddle height like like you and i do so um yeah that was one of many many little little um things that kind of distracted me from cycling in a nice way but yeah it just it's it's done now so they've built it this company called rocky mountain campers in uh, canmore canmore alberta canada and they they built it and yeah it just has to be imported to the u.s basically so got to sit at the border for however many days in Vancouver. And then I don't even know the next time I'm going to use it. That's the, that's the kind <laughs> of, um, that's the kind of disappointing part, but no, I'm sure there'll be plenty of times. I'm hoping to go back after, after Roubaix when I have a little break and spend a few weeks with it. So, um, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. I have to say like, it's something that, yeah, I would love doing. It's just what I fantasize about being able to go to the U.S. and just go wherever I want to go and bring my bikes and train as I'm doing it. And yeah, sounds like an ideal life to me. Yeah, I got it figured out. It's a good time and place for it. That's awesome. Um, early on, as your career is unfolding, or maybe even all, now through the present, who are the who are the folks you looked up to, either in cycling or out? Yeah, really, it was it was Lance. I mean, I'm not really ashamed to say that, but I was pretty inspired by Lance Armstrong. Um, it's controversial or whatever to say that, but I still think of him as yeah, a, a guy that um, 
yeah, inspired me to, to, to ride my bike and he made me watch cycling and pay attention to it. And yeah, he was kind of my hero growing up, I guess. Um, so yeah, he inspired me at a young age, but then when I was older, it was Will Barda. He was a guy who was kind of just a few years older than me, um, from Boise, Idaho. And he was kind of going through all the, all the little yeah steps that you go through to, to make it as a professional cyclist and going through the national team before me and then moving to Europe before me and then yeah signing for a professional team before me so kind of yeah I looked up to him as as a as a guy who uh who was figuring things out and kind of following in his footsteps so um yeah those two guys really and were you teammates with Will he's been on movie star if I'm not mistaken Yes, yeah, yeah. He, he joined Movistar. The last twenty three was his first year there. So yeah, we were teammates for a year, which was really a cool experience. Like we roomed together at Romandy, I remember, and it was a really cool, uh, really nice week. Like we we used to live together also in Nice, but being teammates together after growing up racing, yeah, when I was ten years old, I was riding and training with him every day, and yeah, it was it was really special. So. He's a, he's a really good friend. He still lives right next to me in Nice. Um, nice. So, yeah, it's, it's great. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to wrap up for the sake of you getting dinner or sleep or massage or whatever it is. I guess it's not terribly late into the evening. So three final questions. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite place to ride a bike? You've ridden all over the world. What is the number one place that you would like to ride that you've never ridden? And if you could choose anyone in the world, living or otherwise, fictitious, nonfiction, with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? So, favorite place to ride a bike? Wow, great question. I think, well, favorite place to ride a bike is Nice, where I live. Um, I'm lucky to live in an amazing place. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Nice is the best place I've ever ridden. And where I would love to ride a bike... um, I would love to go to South America and do some like mountain bike, bike packing. It's been something I've always really wanted to do. Uh, my friend Peter did a really long bike pack through Ecuador and yeah, he has some great, great, uh, stories from it. So I'd love to do that. There's a lot of South America that I love to explore. So, um, yeah, I'd love to, to go down to uh, especially like Ecuador, Chile, like the big mountains, um, and just do some, just some, some loose, no stress bike packing, take my time and yeah, have some fun. And the person I'd love to ride with the most fiction or nonfiction. It's a good question. Uh, I think, well, I'd love to like, have gotten just in the past like year gotten listening to andrew huberman so much that i'd love to uh to go on a bike ride with him and pick his brain that'd be able to ask him whatever questions that i want about performance and stuff that sure. don't that he doesn't talk about in this podcast but yeah another person yeah i think yeah that, that that's probably my best answer andrew huberman that'd, that'd be really that'd be really cool great answer I'm reminded of your second answer, bike packing all throughout South America. That sounds like a crazy, awesome, wild adventure. And it reminds me of, you know, you flip in cycling news and certain times a year people are like, oh, look, Wout is on a two-day bike packing trip and he's in the Netherlands or Belgium. And I'm like, that's a very controlled yeah. environment. You go down and do a, a month-long bike packing trip in South America and you're going to raise the 
raise the standard quite a bit within the team. Right. <laughs> right. I don't even think I'd be able to, to be honest, but once uh, I'm retired. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. It's good to have those goals. Go take your van and drive down there in a couple decades. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Right Very on. Good. Well, there's been a little bit of time in the making, so I am really thankful that you made the time. I know that camp is a busy time of the year, so very much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mateo. Thank you so much for having me on.